Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Matthew, bringing you this week's podcast episode with world-famous recording artist Imogen Heap. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Imogen, who recently wrote all of the music for the record-breaking play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, parts one and two, has released a new album and is currently on tour. In this chat, she discusses her amazing career, Mycelia Creative Passport, and more. You can find more info about her and her many projects via imogenheap.com. Moderated by Ben Arthur, here is Imogen Heap. Her career, past, present, and future. Hi guys, very nice to be here uh, on the stage. Uh, happy to share whatever you want to ask me. And uh, I actually spent a bit of time up in the Creative Labs one day and uh, just saw some amazing things. So if there's anyone in here that I might have met, hello again. Because um, I saw lots of kind of music, cool little music apps they were making. And, yeah, it's good. Nice. Sure. So folks here in the audience might know you from uh, songs that were licensed to the OC or Zach Braff's uh, Garden State or uh, your collaborations with Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande or they might know about your performative technology uh, endeavor in the Mimeo Gloves. They might have heard about Creative Passport. They might also have heard about uh, you doing the Harry Potter um, Cursed Child soundtrack. Uh, all of these things uh, are out there in the world which seems breathtaking in their their scope how do you think about yourself uh, when you you know introduce yourself at the allegorical party Wh how do you consider yourself what's your identity um, I don't know I just say um, I'm I like enjoy anything that kind of is around the intersection of music and tech that's what I say so I don't go like I'm a musician I'm a producer I'm a performer I'm an engineer hello I've won some Grammys um, <laughs> I just go I mean I'm into music and tech so. I'm into music and tech. Yeah, okay. That's what I so those are the, the big umbrellas that yeah. you consider. <laughs> One of the things that I've heard you reference a couple of times, and it seems almost um, contradictory to my, my image of you, um, is only do what you can see in the headlights. Can mm. you talk about what that means to you? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, before the days of Google search engine, um, uh, we had a thing called Yahoo. And uh, one day I was in the studio and I was we'll making- We'll bleep that out. <laughs> Why, this is a nice story. Um, and so I was there um, kind of going round and round in circles, trying to finish this song. Um, I'd, I'm, so I am in my studio. This is the first time I recorded a studio and recorded um, an album on my own. So I was in the studio constantly all by myself for like a year. And so it does send you a bit mad. And because I didn't have an A&R man or anyone that would come in and go, oh, that's really good. Or, or you should turn some more cowbell up or whatever they say. Um, I, uh, I was going round and round and so I couldn't finish this song. So I went onto the search engine and I just said, how do you write songs? Um, and I found this article about this writer, um, novelist, who had written this little blog and it said in it, only do what you can see in the headlights. And what she meant was, if in the song you can see that there's a hi-hat that needs fixing or that you could, or you're trying to finish a lyric and you, know, you can see the colour of his eyes, then just do that. Just write that bit and just keep chipping away. And eventually you'll see 
the full path ahead of you and you'll see the, you know, all, all, the, all the landscape. But it's that kind of, oh, I've got so much to do, I've got so much to do. Uh, um, and it's overwhelming and it's, you can't breathe. Um, and then you just remember, well, do what you can see now. Just do that. Don't, see, don't do all that complicated stuff that's far away. You know you have to get to it eventually, but you can't see it just yet. So just do that. So that's what I mean, yeah. And I use that a lot um, in everything from like, how do I look after my child this morning when I've got to get to this interview and I've got, you know, I just say, do what you just see in the headlights, which is make sure she has breakfast, you know. Um, and that's just, yeah, it seems to you, be how... You are supposed to feed them. That's, yes, uh, I'm, I hear, I I'm do I'm a father, so I know. Six months I didn't feed them. No. Every meal. You're not allowed to skip even one. No, it, no it's true. It's, it's, true. it's very strict rules. Um, so one of the many things that you've juggled uh, is the Harry Potter Cursed Child uh, soundtrack. We're going to see a, a quick video um, introducing that album, which has just been released. <laughs> is a bit of the play, um, <clears throat> which is on Broadway here, which is wonderful. Um, and yeah, for about four years ago, I got a call from a friend uh, called Stephen Hoggett, who um, is a movement director and he, has, he used to have this uh, group called the Frantic Assembly. And when I released, uh, well, just after I released a song, an album called Speak For Yourself, which is the same album that I couldn't finish that song. And um, I released that by myself uh, with my own label, and eventually licensed it to Sony because I couldn't deal with all the mail orders. Um, and so, but before that, um, I got this call from this guy, Stephen Hoggett, back then, like 20, 15 years ago. And he's like, I love this album, Speak For Yourself. Could I, I, I want to put it in this play that I'm working on and there's going to be like people dancing around it. And I was like, okay, that sounds really good. And I didn't ask him for payment. And I was just like, that sounds good. Yeah, okay, here you go. And I, I like tweaked some things. I made it a bit longer and and that kind of stuff. And then it went into this play and it was really great and I loved it. It was the first time I'd seen live dance to my music and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I didn't ask for payment. But if I had been signed to a major label at the time, they would have been like, oh yes, sir, I'm going to spend a whole year discussing how much you should get for this and then you won't be able to use it anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so, so I basically, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And then we, we made friends and we kept in touch. And then, you know, he did all these amazing things. And then, the ne you know, not the next call, but a call uh, four years ago was him saying, hi, Imogen, or Imi, as he calls me, um, working on this play. And I can't really tell you what it's about, but they love your music and like all this stuff. Because I did all this weird orchestral stuff and um, like uh, a cappella, strange stuff for an accompaniment for an old silent movie. And, and nobody ever gets to hear that stuff, but he loves me and he loves all of my music and he knows it all really well. <laughs> Well, and so he was putting all these random bits in there, which hardly anyone's heard, and it felt really good. And he was like, I think they really just want you to make the music. Um, and I was like, who, who, who is it? Um, and he said, I can't tell you, but it's about a boy with a scar. And I was like, <laughs> no, 
okay, that's a bit of a giveaway. Um, and so I looked up online, I saw his name connected to this creative team who'd already announced they're doing a play. And then I was like, that's exciting. Um, so then, yeah, I met up with Sonia, who, he, she's the producer, and um, they offered me the job. And uh, yeah, life took a very different turn, um, yeah. What was your relationship to the Harry Potter universe before that? Um, thin, um, <laughs> quite distant. Um, I really don't like reading very much. Um, I mean, that's not true. I like the information that's in the book. Um, I just don't like the process of actually reading it. Um, so, and I've never enjoyed, I've never enjoyed that. Um, my dad thinks that if, he, if it wasn't down to him kind of showing me, you know, going through, he thinks I'm dyslexic. And maybe, because I really struggle, like, you know, getting the words in my head. Um, maybe that's why I like making my own. Um, so anyway, um, so yeah, so that's, that's how it ended up in there and... Fascinating. And yeah. uh, if I can ask, uh, for those of us who were much, much deeper into that universe, um, can we fanboy and fangirl out for a second and ask, sure. did you hang out with J.K. Rowling? Did she invite you to her house, which I assume is a magical oh. castle that you can only uh, access what... via unicorn yeah. or magical boat or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd have, I did meet the lady herself a few times, yeah. She was on, she was on set quite a lot. Um, yeah. And, yeah, she's very, very nice to me. <laughs> she says, she actually, I think, when I first met her, she did this to me. And I was like... <laughs> um, no, she's, she's very happy. Because she, I mean, I, I discovered that they really wanted, um, they really wanted somebody British, a composer that's British, and that was a woman. Um, so... So I was never in the running, many really, <laughs> at all. Um, I, I was. I think also with the help of Stephen and the fact that the you know director and him are like best buddies, it all it all helped. So, um, uh, can you tell us about the the creative process uh, yeah. that because as as I've heard you describe it, sort of it's a creative process within a creative process because they're they're working on their their own thing. It's like your phone. It's really awful, isn't it? Roger. Embarrassing. Ben. Your name's not Roger. Your name's Ben. <laughs> Who's Roger? I just you can, somebody you called can Roger. absolutely it's call me confusing. Roger, though. It's completely fine. Oh, well, now we're, now we're even. You have your phone, and I called you the wrong name. Um, so, Ben. Ben Arthur. Um, your question was? What was your question? Uh, your, your <laughs> oh, the creative process. Sorry. Yeah, so the creative process was um, they really liked a lot of existing material, um, but they needed it adapted. Um, but they had it's a five-hour play, and they wanted a lot of it to be music underscored. Um, but they also like there's kind of three different types of music. There's music that they interact with, which is when they're on the stage and they're like moving around to the music. There's the underscore, and then there's scene changes, like you know, a wall goes across, and it's like ah! <laughs> and things like that. Um, and so the underscore bit is like quite a lot of existing material that's just kind of bumbling away in the background that's been adapted and stretched and added different things. And lots of high frequencies taken out because it kind of gets in the way of the talking. Um, <clears throat> so I learned a lot about how to kind of sculpt around the vocal, like, you know, human voice area. Um, and then uh, a lot of, um, yeah, lots of drones. Um, lots of vocal, loads of vocalizations. There's no lyrics actually. There's only one bit that has a lyric. Um, and Indeed, that, that's from Hide and Seek. Of course, they had to put my famous song in there. Um, so that's the one, the one song they really wanted with a lyric, and 
I didn't want to, I, I, it didn't feel right to have me singing it and they didn't want to have me singing it anyway. So I got my friend's choir to sing it. And then I kind of added the vocal layers underneath and made nice drones and, and uh, but most of the time it was just, it was all about the transitions and that was really, really fun. It really tested my theory skills um, to like, how do I get from that key? How do I modulate from there to there? And how do I, you know, do this? Um, so there's a lot of existing material and very luckily um, <clears throat> over the years, I've been quite uh, vigilant into kind of making making sure that all of the songs have their stems and they're all documented and kind of filed quite nicely. So all of the songs from Speak For Yourself up um, all have like drums, strings, vocals, backing vocals, effects, blah, 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 um, weird sounds, arpeggiated things, etc., etc. Um, and then, so I was lucky enough to be able to pull that in and those ones that I hadn't done, I've got this awesome um, assistant called Alexi and he was in my studio back in England, uh, back in, this village where we live and um, and he would be kind of getting those together and then dropping them into Dropbox um, into Ableton sessions where then I was seated in the theatre for about three months and just with my little you know computer and my little hard drive and whatever and had my uh, my microphone and some little toys and then I was just there like that the whole time and my only regret is that I didn't really get to talk it to anyone other than did you like that or um, could you make that a bit more like this or could you make it a bit less um, and uh, yeah so I didn't really get to talk to the gang very much um, and I was literally there from you know 10 in the morning till uh, 11 at night and I was always well not always but I was quite a lot of the time the last one the last the last one in there saying hi to the security guard. Um, and you took all of this music, something like a hundred cues, mm. and and uh, created an album, yeah. sort of a cohesive album. What was that process like for you? Yeah, so the the in the theatre it was really great because there's like tons of inputs to kind of you know react against and be like ah. Oh, that sound works beautifully with the light. Oh, that sound works beautifully with the sound effect or oh, the pace of that person. So all of these are kind of affirmations of that's working, that's working, keep going, which you don't get in the studio when you're all by yourself. Um, and so, but at the same time, because it's a big theatre system and you don't hear a lot of the detail in the mix, so I was kind of getting away with murder in terms of what I could mix in the time that I had, which is two and a half hours of music, that like quite a lot of it done also from scratch. Um, and so when I finally took that back into my studio, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, I've got so much work to do. There's like a gazillion pops and clicks and all kinds of things I had to draw out. Um, and then, uh, and then just making it sound lush and beautiful and layered and giving it the attention that I do to my own records, but to like, well, it's a 78 minute album. It's like as much as I could fit on a CD physically possible. Um, and it's 42 tracks. And it, so it goes into four acts and they're like one long piece of music for 20 minutes, another long piece of music for 20 minutes. But it's going through 14 or 15 keys. So that's where the kind of, how do you get from this key to that key into three, four, from seven, eight, da, da, da. Um, but it's really fun, uh, but it's a lot of hard work. And I did most of it standing up. Um, because I also yeah, had a life at that time in uh, a flat in London, and so there was a lot of it just standing up. Um, but that was quite good for my posture. <laughs> uh, excellent. Uh, a personal recommendation, I've been listening to uh, the album for a while now. Uh, walking through the city uh, and listening to that on headphones gives you a very weird, uh, mm. magical layer of New York that very surprising, um, because you did a wonderful job sort of making that, that feel magical. Yeah. Which 
there were certain sounds that I always kind of were drawn to. Um, but kind of the other um, kind of secret weapon I had was uh, I developed with a company called Sonic Couture my own set of virtual instruments um, of all my favourite sounds in my studio so that I could basically take them on the road with me. So I could have my Embira, I could have my cello, like harmonic stuff, I could have my cocktail kit, I could have my whirlies. Um, your your marxophone, I read. My marxophone. Which is a my shruti box. sort of socialist trumpet, I think. <laughs> no, it's, it's a... It's a bit like an auto harp, but it has twangs on it. Um, I don't know what you're thinking of. Um, so yeah, Mark's phone. I see you. A bit slow. A bit slow today. Anyway, so um, cut that bit out. Um, yeah. So I have this. We call it the box of tricks, um, which is quite funny because it ends up being a box of tricks in a magical theatre uh, piece. And I used all of those sounds, um, you know, to basically make things sound like me. Yeah. Um, so I, I would always use the, the Mark's phone and I'd use the choir of me's. I could play choirs of me's on my... I had sampled my voice. So if anyone wants to make a sound, a song that sounds a bit like me, you just buy the box of tricks and just go like, a bit of Mark's phone, a bit of string, a bit of vocal harmony things. and sound, yeah. So speaking of instruments, um, I, I wanted to turn to the Mimu gloves. Um, we've got a, a quick little video to introduce you all to this if you haven't seen it before. And here she goes. Okay, um, that was really not a very good example. Because what, ha what happened before? It's not your fault. It's not. It's not your fault. I think it was my team who, for some reason, gave you that. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, what I'd done previous to that is I'd uh, looped my voice by going, catching my voice, and then it would create a loop. And then I would catch another loop. Well, I'd actually put that aside, and then I would catch another loop, and then I'd put that aside, and then I'd catch another loop, etc., etc. And what I'm doing is I'm going uh, posture, fist, up, um, is record and um, when I'm out of that zone it goes to play um, or when it goes to this zone it plays and then it continues to play and then I can't remember exactly because that was ages ago but um, it's something like when I want to pull up the volume of the first loop then I would use my finger like this and I would just be like up down up or just go straight to up it would be 120 well 127 in MIDI note but like 100% uh, loudness um, and then if I wanted to add reverb I just use my secret finger uh, posture which um, basically activates uh, the reverb um, fader or like the pot you know uh, in my software and it just says from naught to 100% so if I was like Dum, it just sound like now but if I was like over there it would be like I was in a massive cave um, and then yeah so I play like bass lines or I might play twinkly sounds or it's just things that I do anyway in uh, when I perform previously 
um, you know, you kind of have to be kind of a little bit barricaded by gear if you want to sample stuff or you're locked into the physical nature of whatever box you're using. And the gloves are, you know, basically controllers at your fingertips. And you can just, uh, yeah, just be very expressive to something which is quite boring. Actually, in real life, it's just like, turn up a thing to 100%. It's like, eh. Um, but you could do that really expressively, like, yeah, something like that. Um, but this is much more like, oh, she's making her voice bigger, you know, or she's catching her voice. And now she's moving it left to right, you know, or maybe even in surround, which I'm doing on the tour, kind of moving it around a 3D space. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, just kind of sampling my voice, bringing in vocoder harmonizers so I can harmonize with my voice. Um, sometimes I integrate it with like an IR camera. Well, they don't make them anymore, but a Kinect. Um, and I would map the stage into different zones so I could be like, when I'm over there, then, um, you know, make the drums more uh, kind of sparse. And when I'm back here, make them more phonetic. Or when I'm over there, switch my harmonizer to minor. Or when I'm over here, you know, or when I'm in the middle, take out my harmonizer. So using the spatial, uh, the, the stage spatially to affect the kind of bigger um, parameters in change in a system like Ableton or Pro Tools or whatever. Um, so it's basically like a mapping device. But how it feels is you take on um, the physicality of something which doesn't have a physical uh, representation. It's like uh, a filter or, you know, a bunch of effects. Uh, it doesn't have a thing that, it's not like a bass guitar, it's like, that's a bass guitar. Um, it's like a reverb. Uh, so you become the reverb and you become, you know, the mixing desk uh, and you become the multiple, you know, voices or, um, yeah, it's the the thing. The only downside that I've discovered from it, um, other than like lots of programming, um, to kind of get it so it feels really human. So that you're never you're never even thinking about actually. I'm going to bring in my reverb now. I'm going to sample my voice. You're just it's just it becomes second nature. I'm going to record my voice, going to make it a bit bigger. Now I'm going to add some heart and some delays. You kind of create a gestural language. The more and more you use the system, because it obviously has a bit of software in between. It's called Glover. Um, which you can also add other inputs, so you don't have to use the gloves with Glover. Uh, you can use, uh, yeah, you can use Connect, you can use a Mayo, you can use an iPhone, you can use your, your Leap Motion, you can use whatever, you know, other types of inputs. Um, and then use them to, you know, move around things in Ableton or whatever. So the gloves are essentially just trying to get away from this uh, limit, limited space I, I felt of trying to add lots more gear to create a fluidity or a, a kind of spontaneity on the stage. Sure, and and for you now that you've actually developed these, uh, do you find when you perform that you're in them most of the time, all of the time? Yeah, I wear them all the time. All the time. On the stage, because I take them off. They're quite pretty and they don't itch or anything. Um, they basically have like eight bend sensors. They've got one, two, 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 and one. They have uh, lights for feedback, and you can program the lights to do whatever you want. It might be like, turn it red when I'm in record, which you know it's in record, but it's nice for the audience to see, oh, it's in record, it's gone red. Um, and then you know, it's got a battery, it's got an IMU, so you can get your kind of positional data, and it's got accelerometer, so you can be like drum peaks. Um, and uh, I do air guitars, so it's really fun. Um, and uh, yeah, so, that kind of combination, then you've got your axes, so you've got your pitch, you've got your and you've got roll. 
uh, and then you've got different so zones, backwards, forwards, up, down. And the combination of that leads to so many possibilities because if you have a keyboard and you're like, I'm going to play a squidgy bass sound, so you might be like, dun, 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 and you want it to go wow or something, um, you could do that for pressure with pressure. You could make it slightly harder if you want it to go wow. But if you want it to like do that and change the tone or something around it, um, you would have to use your other hand which is then entirely consumed by going wow, um, and you're like suddenly just playing a three-note bass line with a wow thing. But you could just be going wow like that, the same, but just your whole hand, and you could move around the stage and do, um, yeah. So it's not good for everything. Uh, it's not good if you want to play like some Rachmaninoff with your fingers, um, but you, you do that on the piano, because that's what the piano's for. Um, it's really for all of the, the unseen bits, the bits that don't have a voice or a physical Nice. But you do get lost in it. That's the only thing. Interesting. You, you just, I close my eyes all the time. And I'm like in the zone, I'm playing hide and seek, I'm layering my voice, I'm bringing in a harmonizer. And I'm like, God, I finished the song. Did I actually look at anyone? Um, because it's like you're, you're playing and it's like fills you. Because I have in ears as well. I like just hear the sound and I'm just like, you just get lost because you don't touch anything you know, uh, like a machine or whatever. It just kind of, it becomes really like a second skin. A visceral experience. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, <laughs> where in the development process are you right now? Is Are, are you licensing into someone? Are you, are you looking for a funding partner? Are you... Um, <laughs> Why are you offering? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I was going to wait till later, but okay. Um, uh, no, I'll tell you what we've been doing, because um, it has been quite hard, you know, I'm not um, kind of corporate structures and all that stuff's not my forte. Um, so we, we have a team and they've grown over the eight years um, since we started developing it for my own personal fun time use, um, which then became, we did some conferences and things like this and ones before. And uh, over time, we've had loads of interest, tons and tons of emails that we, we set up a company eventually, because it's like, well, maybe we should make them um, instead of you know, just for my own personal enjoyment um, or for my, my, my shows. And so we did start to develop them, but that's a huge curve, you know, to have to make it something that everyone can use, software that's, you know, intuitive, hardware that's robust and, you know, uh, cheap enough to, you know, make enough of them. Um, so we have, we've made like 50 handmade pairs for people over the years, and now we are getting much closer to releasing something this year, um, which, just 100 pairs, but they will be manufactured, and it'll be a lot kind of down in, not that much down in cost, but maybe in five years' time. So if enough people buy Teslas, they'll be like two quid next year. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it is that the, the early adopters do pay the higher price, but they, you know, get the benefit of better service and whatever sure. they can. So yeah, this year we're going to release them. Um, we have released the Mini Mew. If you have any a small child in your life, um, you can make uh, your own glove. Um, it's quite basic, but it's still fun. Um, and you can build it and code it yourself. Um, and it's called the Mini Mew. Yeah, I can't wait to see a ballet. Yeah, your, your girl. Well, I do. Yeah. I do have a youngster yeah, yeah. who might be interested in such. But I can't mm. wait to see a ballet where the where the dancers become yeah. the musicians. Yeah. Uh, so whoever out there is doing that should yeah. do that because yeah. it seems yeah. built for yeah. a, a hybrid art. Yeah, it's it's you kind of because you use your whole body to move your hand. You know, you don't just be like <laughs> you're like even though you might be just going like that. You kind of want to go like that, you know, because it's like I'm catching the sound. Um, 
so for for the dancers, they, you know, they use their whole bodies, and you you, you could, um, I mean, for fine detailed sounds, it's they're great, but you could equally use an infrared camera, you know, um, or a kind of an array uh, to to have a play space for some dancers. But combined with the gloves, you could get a lot more detailed and you know really amazing timing, like you don't notice any latency at all. Neat. Um, yeah, it's really fun. Well, speaking of uh, broad uh, shifts in, in technology, mm. um, we wanted to talk about Creative Passport. Um, yes. And we have a, a, a brief snippet of a video. You can see the longer um, full video uh, on the YouTube. Um, but for the moment, uh, we'll show you this. <laughs> the Creative Passport, an identity in a searchable database for music makers to upload and share their information. Everything you'd like to share about you as a music maker verified and in one place. Map and empower the global music maker community as you list and link to your music and sound contributions. Add unique descriptive data to your profile and individual works to increase discoverability for brand partnerships, playlisting, syncs, collaborations, live or session bookings. At the same time, enabling music services to innovate, benefiting both us and our audiences. This is an identity that belongs to and works for you while also connecting all of your external existing IDs in one place. Imagine uploading your biography only once, but updating simultaneously across all services. Sounds good? Who's going to build it? You and I. We all are. Step by step with music makers and services in forums we host all over the world on our ongoing music and tech tour. Interested? Show your support, sign up, keep up to date with the latest developments and get involved at myceliaformusic.org. Let's bring this necessary missing layer, a music maker database to life for the health of our global music ecosystem. Because let's face it, nobody else can do it for us. The Creative Passport by music makers for everyone. So join up. Um, <laughs> now we don't really have anything at the moment. Um, this is more like a kind of call to action for musicians to think about their identity, think about what that means, think about uh, ownership of data, um, about getting organized really, about having a place in the world where you can say, that is the digital me. That's where I, as a creative self, exist. Because um, you know it's great to have all these different services, and they have their own identities for you. Or you may be, you know, you have a profile on Twitter and blah, 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 and all these other things. But where are you? Like, I feel very torn apart. I feel very like a big massive tentacle in the oceans. Just, I don't have a centre. Like, you're speaking to my centre as a physical thing, but I don't have that. And more and more as we kind of progress into, you know, developments in AI and discoverability and curation and. And that I really believe that the future of work is going to be around our unique selling points, around how we, how we express who we are in the digital space so that our cells are working 24-7 on our behalf, in our words perhaps, in our, uh, in, in our, with our ethos, um, interfacing with the world. And so when it comes down to music, um, how do we present ourselves? Uh, the, the, we have a major problem in the music industry whereby uh, you know, the commercial music industry didn't adopt uh, the technology of MP3 and didn't see Napster as this incredible, amazing opportunity to like go, wow, this is 
life-changing for musicians and the industry. Let's get on this and, and make it something really great. And instead they kind of went, let's sweep it under the carpet and put people in jail. Um, and really just people wanted to share music that they loved. And so what happened was the, you had a huge disassociation from the music and the people that made it. Then it just never managed to catch up. And the music industry has been trying to catch up and they're basically firefighting every day as people try to innovate on this very crooked um, kind of heavy, clunky industry. Um, so there's like thousands of services, and I've spoken to hundreds of them, um, who want to build new services on, you know, using existing music. But to get, to, to reach that point where they have the permission to do that, to license the music, it's just not viable. They have to raise so much money with VC that it then only leaves little tiny scraps for the musicians in the end, if any. Um, and it's a very lengthy process. And I just feel... More than ever, um, we have an opportunity with new technologies um, where we could create an open database of works that the whole world could come around and create this kind of Alexandria, this library of, of content, whereby all of the music services, the labels, the publishers, the collection societies, who all have their own databases at the moment, costing them huge amounts of money, um, that they have to keep you know, updated and verified and all that stuff. Um, and they're all incomplete and they all compete with one another. Right. Um, but if that was just, just get rid of that, we don't need to have multiple versions of the same thing and all slightly different and all slightly bad. Let's just have, let's share into a space and, co and contribute to that, um, that, you know, alive kind of world of music and, and data and, and augment what's already there into something that can be tuned into by all the services so they don't have to have that weight on their back, basically. Right, so speaking of that, you say on um, Mycelia that you, you see this as a potential uh, portal mm -hmm. for income. Can you talk about how blockchain uh, relates to mm. a Creative Passport or doesn't? Yeah, um, sure. Um, so for me, you know, I've been in the music industry 23 years. It's very, very hard to know where your money is at any one time. We spent um, about a year trying to research just the income for one song, just one song. And it's taken like a team of seven students on and off for a year just to try to get to the bottom of what, where, where does it come from? What is that radio station? What is that thing over there? Why is that not match up with that? Um, and that's for me with a team of people going into the offices of the PRS and the collection societies. Could you explain this? I don't really understand that. And we're still like only 5% there. Um, so it's, it's an insane amount of, you know, complication for, uh, which, which comes from, you know, the physical, you know, the, the old day, 100 years ago of, you know, how do we pay a publisher when something gets played on the radio? And it's much simpler. Um, so... The Creative Passport is really just about us putting our flag in the sand, uh, musicians at the moment, verifying each other through peer-to-peer -peer verification, like we have a QR code, you just shine your, your camera on someone else's QR code and you go, okay, I verify who you are. And that is a thing that then creates a trust network around all the music makers across the planet in time. Um, but we're not ready for that yet. Um, we're just doing a very kind of... We're mainly just going around the world doing this tour where I do concerts, I do workshops, I show off my gloves, I, uh, give I do conferences, I do q and I do whatever I can. Um, and we meet with music makers and services and we talk about this future ecosystem. Because essentially, if we had like this incredibly rich data source um, linked to the actual content, um, linking out to all of the musicians who contributed to those 
works, then you can imagine all these amazing possibilities of discoveries and connections and offerings of jobs and new, you know, somebody wants to book somebody a private concert because they saw, they heard something in Spotify or Google or whatever, YouTube, and they went, oh, right, um, I really, really like that person's work. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and book her um, and maybe you do it right from the song. Um, and you, you link, or you say, I love that trumpet player. I want to, I want to put that trumpet player. I want to put that trumpet in my film. Um, and then they like book the trumpet player. Um, but if we don't have a way to kind of go, here I am, and here are my songs, we don't have anything to build from. We don't have a home. Uh, imagine you were at a like a, a large influential tech company um, talking. <laughs> Uh, to some very handsome and smart employees, um, <laughs> how would you convince them to support you, and how could they support uh, yeah. Creative Passport? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we're not we're not ready for like big integration yet. Um, we need to we need to go kind of and create a groundswell among musicians so they they get they kind of own this space because this is a autonomous thing we need to do. Um, we need to convince music makers to take charge of their data and to really like take their digital self seriously. So at the moment, um, we are talking with tons of services. Um, we're, you know, might have four or five, a little handful by April or May when we come on the tour around here and we do more. So to bring on more music makers. But, you know, we're not ready for that. Like, it's not like MySpace or LinkedIn. It's not like, it's not ready. It's just, imagine if you owned this. Imagine if you owned your identity. Um, and what could, what could grow from that? Because then if we reach like 1,000 or 10,000, what's gonna be the tipping point for someone, you know, a company, an organization like Google to go, we're gonna integrate, you know, our YouTube service with the Creative Passport and that would be mega, but we're not ready for that yet. Cause it's not, you don't have an incentive enough just yet because we need to have, you know, we, we would need to have hundreds of thousands before it's of interest. Right, so, so you need musicians maybe some in the audience uh, and, and other other people out there in the YouTube audience to come and sort of be a part of the community and help help shape yeah. that so that you become a large enough organization that, so that you can uh, pull more some, yeah, yeah pull some weight yeah, okay exactly. fascinating yeah. because um, yeah we you know we have representatives on our behalf like labels and publishers and collection societies but a lot of us don't like. So many musicians don't have any way to get in, even into any industry because they might be in Sudan or they might be in who knows where they might be. They have no way to get onto the ladder. And if we can try and you know reach our handshake across or our Mexican wave across the world or whatever um, to these musicians, then we're bringing them into this truly global community, music community. That then hopefully all the services will start to think, oh, well that's actually really interesting because now we're reaching to this market and this market and this, you know, and that's their incentive. Um, but for us, it's, you know, it's how can we create uh, a beautiful, healthy, living kind of ecosystem from which these services can grow on, kind of on our, uh, that makes sense for us. And, and then we're truly sustainable and then we can, you know, have, you know, centuries of wonderful, beautiful music because the musicians are supported. Um, I think we have a question for you. I think my salary was very interesting. Um, I'm kind of curious... Uh, so, it, you obviously need the three majors to be involved. Not yet. You don't think so? No, I don't think we need them, no. H how does Merlin feel about it? Um, the thing is, it's like, it's outside 
of licensing. This is about your like personal identity. It's my skill sets, it's my projects, it's my interests, it's my philosophy, it's my biography. It's things that aren't actually at this moment to do with my songs. They would link into a songs database, which Mycelia isn't. Mycelia is like the vision, the blue sky imagination of the future, but the creative passport is a thing. It's like an app, um, a trust anchor uh, for other services to be able to go, oh yeah, that is Imogen Heap because she's got a creative passport and she's been verified by her peers, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if you wanted to like go and book a gig, some promoter could pretty much trust you because that is, you've been verified by your peers that, and you have a good track record and that kind of thing. So at the moment, um, where the record, like the kind of the majors are going to get interested is when this database does start to emerge, which it, it is starting to emerge in places like Sweden, there's one, in Malta, there's one. And actually here there's going to be a new one um, around the Music Modernisation Act, around the me mechanicals, how they're going to be paid to the writers. And that's something that just passed a few months ago in Congress. So they have to build that in the next two years. And I'm going, hello, IBM and Berkeley. Um, how are you going to do that without uh, the music makers? How are you going to build that without us being able to add and add to the content that you have around your publishers because that's how they're going to build it they're going to combine the big publishers together and create the another database um, but it's only going to be as good as their combined databases um, and it won't it the the problem with that is that you know whether they're guilty of it or not um, is that the money that comes in from the services will then go to this body um, and then the money that can't be distributed because they don't know the writers because they're too small fry and it's too much effort for them to do it, um, will just go back to the writers that they do have. They, they do look after. After four years or whatever the deal is, that it'll, it's probably something like that, um, it will get redistributed back to the original writers that they, they look after. So the, the other writers are all around the world and all the smaller writers won't get that, that money. And that's tiny amounts to, to these other artists, but to them it could be like... 50 quid or 100 quid or 1,000 quid. Um, so, so when they create that, we want the Creative Passport to be able to enable individual musicians to be able to author into and claim uh, you know, uh, a way to uh, kind of point to this is how to pay me or this is, this is my collection society or this is actually me, this missing bit here, so that we can tidy up and do the job for them that they can't afford to do because it's tiny amounts. Um, so the majors, like the record side of things, because they don't have, you know, your ISRC and your ISWC, your two codes that you have for your recording and your publishing, um, there is no shared database of that, which is crazy. Um, and so if this does start to emerge, that may be where the majors start to pile in their recorded data. Uh, and that might start to flourish and become this big Alexandria. Who knows? If we can kind of make, if we can find a way in for the musicians, and it can it can grow f further. Otherwise, it will just become become another kind of clearinghouse, um, kind of closed space, which will have all this money put into it by the you know public money. Um, but it won't be further reaching. It it will just be another closed database. And that'll be a shame. So we're we're running a little low on time. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. Um, I didn't answer the question, did it? Kind of. Sort of. I mean, yeah. it's such a complicated space. It is very space complicated, which is why we need to simplify. Do. And that's when they're going to come on board. Is when you like, when you say, look, all that kind of accounting stuff that you do, and all that really annoying paperwork, and that you're just like, oh god, I wish I didn't have to do this. When that disappears because we have smart contracts and payments, and you know. 
That, what, what I'd say to you, though, is that that asymmetry of information is basically a competitive advantage for labels to be able to bargain with people like Spotify. Yeah. And when yeah. you have 70 or 80% of Spotify's catalog coming mm. from majors, mm -mm. it puts them in this position where they have to ingest majors' data. Yeah. Uh, and this is where I'm sort of like, don't you need the majors on board? Yeah, so that's a good example. And the thing is, is that you have to, if you look at the long term, um, the majors, you know, they might hold licenses for I think there's a maximum of 35 years. I mean, 70. I mean, the Beatles stuff is about to come out of licensing. It was from the 50s. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but it's like if you think of all the new material and most the, the trend is, you know, big labels hold large amounts of existing work, and younger, you know, up and coming artists or people like myself own our own works and we have small holdings around our own works so how can we make that really easy so that people like spotify can deal with us directly so it's a chicken and egg problem it is yeah and we are need to be the chicken or the egg whichever way but we need to get on with it <laughs> we need to make the first move basically yeah that's what uh, thanks. we have another question over here uh yeah i have a completely different question Excellent. uh so i i assume like uh writing and performing wearing the gloves kind of causes you to make different creative decisions than you would mm -hmm. if you were just using like a regular MIDI controller with like standard mm -hmm. decoders. Uh, are there like other technologies that you think should be utilized more or really are like aren't kind of getting the attention that they could that could have that same potential to change the way that people either uh, write and perform music or experience it? Mm. Thanks. Uh, interesting question. Um, I mean, how write and perform music? The way I, I really enjoy the kind of the unknown, like, oh, there's something over there I haven't tried yet, or there's an input there that I've never had to deal with, like audience heartbeat info or something, or like, um, I don't know, galvanic skin response or something. Um, like, what would I do musically if I knew the audience? Like, actually, I'm, I'm trying to develop a thing, like, it may never happen because lots of things don't happen, but um, it's just a simple, it's, it's actually got a terrible name. Um, it's called The Love Glove. Um, <laughs> I know, it's going to be made of shiny material. No, um, it's just a, a way that I thought it'd be nice to, for the audience to be able to have, like, they could show their love. Like, I love this bit. Um, instead of, like, taking in camera pictures or like, or, like, clapping at the end, that I could see, oh, somebody really likes that bit, you know, or, oh, they really, they've got a thing, and just, like, that little eye contact. And I think when you get those kind of bits, you know, from the audience... Um, isn't isn't it that does, not a lighter? Though, just yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's really only for the slow songs, though. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, it might be something. I don't know. I was thinking about like, could then I could give back the love, and I could like kind of pump up the love, and then I could get more love in their hand, and it would kind of die down if they used too much of it all the time, so it doesn't get too annoying. Um, anyway, I just, I just, yeah, it's true. They could just use a lighter. You just saved me like ten thousand pounds. <laughs> I should bring I, you to my team. I'll, I'll take a, a check or a cash. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you all for uh, hanging out with us here uh, at the Talks at Google. And thanks uh, for the team for uh, getting all this done. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Image Neep. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more unique and interesting content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google or via our Twitter handle at Google Talks. 
Talk soon. Bye.